One of the questions I often ask at the end of the show is, when you write some Python code, what editor do you use? Increasingly, the most common answer is Visual Studio Code. Despite its Windows-only namesake, Visual Studio Code is cross-platform and has been gaining a lot of traction in the Python space. I was at the Microsoft Build conference immediately after PyCon this May. There, I got a chance to sit down with Dan Taylor from the VS Code team to discuss what they've been up to with VS Code and Python. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 216, recorded May 8th, 2019. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy. Keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. This episode is sponsored by Linode and Backlog. Please check out what they're offering during their segments. It really helps support the show. Dan, welcome to Talk Python. Hi, it's great to be here. Uh, it's great to have you on the show, and we get one of these special opportunities to do an in-person recording with each other, right? Before we get into the normal flow, I just want to you know, say, hey, we're here at Microsoft Build recording live, not in a live audience, but in person and sort of on the floor here. So it's really, really cool. It's great to be here, and we're going to talk a bit about that, also about PyCon. But you know, let's start at the beginning. Start with your story. How did you get into programming in Python? Programming, I've, I've uh, kind of had like a computer, a 386 computer, since I was like five years old at my house, right? And so... I was I was doing a lot of like batch file stuff and DOS and things like that. But I remember batch files. That used to feel like pretty awesome programming stuff, right? You would you'd be able to make the computer do its magic at startup, right? You could mess with auto exec bat and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then like if you were like get really into it, I mean doing an if statement in a batch file programming is like really, really hard. But you know, <laughs> I made like a little text adventure game, something like that. Oh but, my gosh, that's awesome. Yeah, but I think oddly enough, when I really got into programming was with uh, Visual Basic six. I was uh, sitting in grade school just like during reading time, just reading a VB6 book that I'd printed out. And everyone's <laughs> looking at me going like, what is this guy doing? That's awesome. I remember printing out the source code for uh, Notepad, I think, in C++ and reading oh, and trying to understand yeah. it way back in the day. Uh, that's pretty cool. You know, VB6, is that was a special time, actually. You could really build some cool UI super quick with VB6, with that drag and drop stuff. And I feel like we kind of don't really have that anymore. Yeah, I mean, that's really what got me hooked into programming, that you could kind of, like, I could see something, I could just double click, and then it really gave me this, you know, it's that game of where you get that five minutes to success, and you just want to, like, keep playing the game until you build up stuff. I built all sorts of different programs up. I mean, some of the, like, visual programming stuff is starting to come back with, like, EduBlocks and MakeCode, right. some of those things. And I think that, that kind of stuff can really, like, maybe get more young people into programming, just like that was kind of the aha moment for me, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah, I definitely think that's, I think it's a little bit missing. I think a lot of the cool frameworks that were really good at that kind of outgrew it Mm -hmm. a little bit and become like a little more pro, which is fine. But it also means like those simple, easy steps into like super quick UIs is gone. I mean, VB6 is good. Windows Forms was actually not bad, but Mm -hmm. it kind of became WPF, which is super hard, not super hard, but relatively for like just jumping into it. There's Anvil, which is kind of a cool web front-end thing, and Python. But yeah, there's not too many of them. Anyway, so that was sort of the the getting started point, but that's not Python, right? That's VB6. I think the first time I used Python, I was working at Autodesk, and I was working on some of the graphics stuff. And uh, there it was all just building UIs in Python and using Swig to interact with C++ and stuff like that. And then I just kind of like took that back to school with me, to school projects where professors were kind of saying you know, hey, you should use a real programming language so that you can like learn real programming. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, this is real programming. I just built all this stuff with it. And now you got like all these big companies doing, you know, you got sites like Instagram and Pinterest all built with Python. Yeah, yeah. I mean, YouTube gets a million requests per second. Is that not real enough? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's it's interesting how our perspective changes on that stuff over time. You know, it it makes me crazy when people call Python a scripting language. Yeah. You know, you're like, oh, it's a, is that your favorite scripting language? I'm like, whoa. Well, it's great at scripting. (laughs) Exactly. It's also great at a lot of other stuff too. You can build real things with it. So your time at Autodesk was that building stuff that was like embedded into some of those apps or was it like workflow between the apps? What kind of stuff was there? Well, I was working on a product that I don't remember exactly what it was called, but it was doing like visualization of, of cars and things like that. And cool. um, 
the UI that that team had decided to use uh, Python for the UI with WX widgets, and then it would call down in the C++ layer to do a lot of the 3D graphics, but it did a lot of the scene manipulation and things like that with Python. So there was some vector math and sort of all sorts of stuff that was in Python. So it was this weird, you know, you could do a lot of things in Python, and then all of a sudden you're in this big C++ world and stuff like that. So. Yeah, it sounds really cool, though. The 3D stuff is always so interesting, but it's also pretty challenging to work in. Like, I built a couple from scratch 3D simulators and OpenGL and stuff, and mm-hmm. I always thought, the first half, I'm like, it's going to be so fun. The second half, I'm like, why can't I see the thing, you know? Because I have the clockwise versus anti-clockwise Yeah, you're doing that thing with your fingers where you get the three <laughs> axes, and I had this book, you know, real-time rendering, where I'm just, yes. like, you know, staring up in the room, trying to, like, you know, figure out what direction things are pointed at. You yeah. Know, it's kind of crazy. It is t- it's totally crazy. Let's talk a little bit about what you do day-to-day. Uh, you work at Microsoft. What do you do there? So I, I'm a, a principal PM manager for a Python developer tools team. I, I have a small team of PMs. We work on Python and Visual Studio Code, Python Visual Studio, and then also uh, Python and Azure. So Yeah, that's pretty awesome. It's a pretty big set of different things, but uh, yeah, we do quite a bit. Yeah, and it's growing, right? Yep, it's growing. The, the When I started the team, it was just uh, me and one other PM, and I was working with uh, Brett Cannon. And uh, now Brett Cannon's managing a team and I'm managing, you know, it's sort of just, uh, we're doing a lot with Python at Microsoft. Yeah, it's, it's super exciting. And yeah, so you work with a lot of people, a lot of the, the folks at Microsoft that are also have been on the show, yeah? Been on the show and uh, out there in the community, you know, working on the core Python developers. Uh, we got a couple of, uh, you know, Brett and Steve on our team. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I think it's going to be a pretty interesting perspective that you have coming from like Microsoft customers and developers. And intersecting here with Python, right? Like it's, Mm -hmm. I feel like you might get a little more visibility into what Python at enterprise or large corporate places kind of looks like. What what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting spectrum. I mean, we definitely see a lot more, I work with a lot more individual developers working in Python land than I do in other places. But then we also hear with .NET and the other programming languages, we talk to a lot more big enterprises, right? But we also hear from... um, you know, the big enterprises doing Python, they have all these challenges and concerns around performance and scale and compliance and security and like all these different things with that, you know, when you're just sitting down there trying to like, you know, hey, how do I learn programming and, and make Hello World that, you know, these two worlds are very at odds with each other. And it's interesting watching sort of the core development team on Python trying to navigate and negotiate the different pressures and stuff like that that are kind of coming from two directions. How do we enable it to meet all these enterprise needs while still keeping it you know, fun, easy to use, really productive and, and not adding a whole bunch of, you know, stuff that's getting in my way, right? Now. Yeah, yeah. Don't over-professionalize the, the Python because, you know, one of the things I, I go on a lot about is like how Python is a full spectrum language. Like you don't have to take the complexity at the yeah. beginning. Like you can be productive with Python with like a partial understanding of what it is, yeah. what it can do, but it can't, it does, you don't outgrow it so much like say VB6, for example, like you said earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, Python is kind of my go-to for, you know, anytime I want to do something, my, my first answer is like, can I do this with Python, right? But in terms of like kind of managing the complexity, I think, well, I forget the name of that, uh, that backslash operator that gives you the sort of positional arguments and stuff like that, that, you know, that's an interesting one is like where you can add that and you can use it and that allows you to interface with C APIs and things like that. But hopefully most people never have to see that, right? And, yeah, you know exactly. Right. You could, you could go your whole life as a developer, not knowing that there's a syntax for keyword only arguments. And now there's a syntax for positional only arguments, Right, you don't you don't need to know. It's cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah, cool. So we were both just at PyCon, and we quickly got on a plane and flew to Seattle to go to build. Uh, what were your thoughts on, I guess, PyCon first? PyCon is just such an amazing event, and it's. Uh, I, I don't think I've been to another event that's quite like it. I mean, it really is. You know, Ernest was on the stage talking about how this PyCon means community to a lot of people, right? And just seeing that in the community, and it's, and it's such a diverse and inclusive place. And so, it, you know, after last year was my first PyCon, and after I left, I was sort of like, I think I'd keep coming back here even if I wasn't working on Python or working at Microsoft and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, that's um, super cool. I feel like it's like my geek holiday, my geek getaway. Yeah, you know? and and, uh, and then there's all the people that you see through all the different events uh, throughout the year and, and, and all the things. So it's great that, you know, Microsoft is, is there and we're able to help sponsor it where the Keystone sponsored the event. So it was um, great to have kind of the big presence there and just really just see a lot of people coming up and talking to us at the event. It was yeah, awesome. that's super. And you guys had a cool like hands-on thing where people could get a little robot or something. What was that about? Yeah. So you, you, we had uh, hands-on labs using like VS Code and uh, some of our 
like Azure Functions and some of our cognitive services, and then you get a little Adafruit uh, lunchbox kit, which has some some circuits and some things like that. And then uh, Nina actually did a, a workshop with the Adafruit team where they came over with your lunchboxes and, and walked people through a sample lab. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, Nina's got a bunch of cool embedded wearable stuff going on, and it's like right up her alley. Yeah, she loves that stuff, and her, she did a keynote on Python hardware, and and um, I mean it was just awesome, and I I really loved how she said that that hardware really makes people more interested in programming and women in particular makes them more likely to stick with uh, programming and tech and stuff like that. Yeah, there were some super interesting results coming from the BBC Microbit study done in the UK a couple of years ago and just how much more likely people were to go into STEM or care about it. It just makes it general. real, right? It's, yeah. it's sort of like what we were talking about earlier. It's sort of you see that, hey, I can do something. I can make these lights flash. I can make noises. You know what I mean? And, and you just must make you keep playing the game, right? Yeah, absolutely. You get those quick wins and things like um, CircuitPython and stuff make it way easier than you know embedded C. Yeah, yeah. No backslashes. Yeah, right on. Let's start talking a little bit about uh, VS Code. So... When did VS Code come out? It came out in 2015. I don't remember the exact month, but 2015. So not too long ago. Yeah, not too long ago. And originally, it, it wasn't necessarily supporting Python right out of the box, right? So when it originally came out, it was... And what was the original goal or like yes. idea behind it? So the original like you know pitch, it was a free open source cross-platform editor with uh, support for Node.js and JavaScript with built-in debugging and source control, right? right. So it's so, kind of like an editor plus, right? Just a yeah. little bit of extra functionality. Yeah, just it seems to me like its original Zen was just like, we're going to try to be as minimal as possible while providing you like real tooling, mm-hmm. right? Like editors and autocomplete, but try to be the least amount of that that we can still get away with. That's, that was my perception from the outside. Certainly, like you see a lot of people using things like Vim or... Notepad++ and stuff like that. And and you can see a lot of people just want, you know, let me just open the code and start working with it. And then, you know, start from there and then add on the debugging and functionality, you know, sort of on top of that. And then shortly after that, they didn't have extensions when they first released it. And then everyone was like, you know, it got quite a good reception when they first put it out there. And then everyone's asking for ex- extensions. And so once once they put the extensions out there, that's when other languages started really coming on board, like Python. Yeah, I feel like that kind of made it blow up. Yeah, yeah, it really opened the doors. And the extensions are, is really what what a lot of people say they love about VS Code today. You know, they, that uh, it's just got so many extensions out there and so many people building them and creating them and... Uh, that's even how Python got its roots. Uh, Don Giamani from uh, Australia just built a Python extension, put it out there, and it, it sort of took off on the, on the marketplace. Yeah, that's super cool. And I had him on the show quite a while ago, and we were remarking about how insanely popular that extension was. This was before he worked with you and at Microsoft. It yep. was just his thing. And I think we were like, wow, there's a million downloads or 500,000 downloads or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, that number just keeps increasing all the time, right? So even a year ago, there was 6 million downloads, and now there's 44 million. (laughs) Yeah, I looked at it. It's like 44 million. And what's pretty impressive to me is this project that comes from Microsoft that's traditionally been pretty heavy in the C-sharp, C++ side of things, if you pull up the most popular plugins or extensions, you don't see C-sharp and then like ASP.NET extensions and then somewhere down the list, Python, right? Like Python's the number one most popular extension. Yeah, and um, that's something that really got me excited to move over to the Python team at Microsoft about uh, two years ago. They said, hey, I've been walking around saying, why aren't we doing more with Python? Come on, we should be doing, we have a Python team, but you know, we should be doing more. And then, um, you know, someone said, Hey, we hired Don and we're going to, you know, put a team on it. You want to do this? And I was like, ah, oh, I gotta, I gotta jump over. Yeah. There. How do I get involved with that? That's yeah, awesome. It's, it's just, uh, so much fun working on this team. That's super cool. Yeah. I did some other looking around and the second and third most popular extensions are ESLint is number two and C is number three. And they're only half as many, which is still 20 million, but they're still significantly less. One thing I will say about the download count is every time we push an update to the extension, those count as new downloads. So they've they've added the install counts on the marketplace. Just I see. Just full disclosure, you know, yeah, we, yeah, we push yeah. out a lot of little updates now and then, so some of those can. So the more active teams can like yeah. get a little better, get a little ahead. Yeah, exactly. So that's um, still pretty good, though. But yeah, we're still the number one by installs as well. VS Code's a, an Electron JS app, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe tell people quickly who don't know. Like, there's all sorts of folks who listen. Like, what is that? Like, that's kind of a fairly new and unusual way to build an app, but it's definitely taken off like Slack and some other 
folks are that way as well. I'll do the best just as I can being a, a program manager, but <laughs> the Electron is a framework for building JavaScript apps on the desktop. And I think that that's what we really enabled us to create something that was cross-platform right out of the gate without too much dealing with weird low-level C platform code, right? Right. You've got Chrome that's already cross-platform node that's cross-platform and then JavaScript and HTML, right? Yeah. It made so much sense for us. We, we had this online editor called Monaco, which was created by Eric Gamma, one of the gang of four. The original design patterns from, yeah. you know, like early 90s. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, he had built this online editor that we've been using in Microsoft for some of our like online source control, some, some online editing experiences in Azure. And so they were just able to say like, hey, we got this online editor, we got Electron, let's build VS Code. And they, they really actually put it together relatively quickly and just yeah. put it out there. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Linode. Are you looking for hosting that's fast, simple, and incredibly affordable? Well, look past that bookstore and check out Linode at talkpython.fm slash Linode. That's L-I-N-O-D-E. Plans start at just $5 a month for a dedicated server with a gig of RAM. They have 10 data centers across the globe, so no matter where you are or where your users are, there's a data center for you. Whether you want to run a Python web app, host a private Git server, or just a file server, you'll get native SSDs on all the machines, a newly upgraded 200 gigabit network, 24-7 friendly support even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guarantee. Need a little help with your infrastructure? They even offer professional services to help you with architecture, migrations, and more. Do you want a dedicated server for free for the next four months? Just visit talkpython.fm slash Linode. One thing that's a little interesting is you guys also now have, I mean, not you individually, you as the Microsoft, you have Atom after you've acquired GitHub, right? Which is mm -hmm. also Electron.js, I mm -hmm. believe. It's kind of interesting. Like, what's the story with those two? Are they both going forward or yeah, so what are you doing? Yeah, so Nat Friedman, when he became the CEO of GitHub, he did an AMA on, on Reddit and this, this question came up and uh, I loved his answer. He said... As long as people want to keep using Atom, we'll still work on Atom and put it out there. So yeah, yeah, I know some people using Atom and they're doing cool stuff with it. So it's pretty awesome. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting how uh, things have shifted. Like, how's the whole GitHub acquisition changed or changed people's perspective for you all working on the team, or, or has it? They're still kind of managed as this different company, have their own CEO and stuff like that. And I can only speak from my own experience, but my own experience is that we're just more likely to recommend using GitHub in places rather than having to, you know, maybe come up with our own solution or have two implementations sometimes. It makes it a lot easier to just say, well, just use GitHub. Yeah. Well, I think people are starting to say that anyway. Yes. Yeah. Right. We're, it's... Yeah. We're already kind of going in that direction. So it, it, before there was any word of you all buying GitHub, it was still like, Clearly, the momentum, mm -hmm. the black hole of open source in a positive way was GitHub just sucking everything in, right? Yeah. And, and you know, I, I was so excited when I like opened my phone up and pulled up my stock ticker app. And I'm like, <laughs> what? We buy, oh, this is amazing. What? Yeah. <laughs> what is this news event? What is this? Yeah. I think it's positive. I know there was a little bit of um, surprise, some trepidation in the open source space when that first hit. There are people talking about moving to Bitbucket or other places, but I don't really see that manifesting. What I thought was super interesting was actually looking at some of the reasons behind, and it, it looked like it was really, in the end, a pretty positive outcome for every, you know, both GitHub and, and you guys. The thing that, and I can just react to what I read, there's always a negative reaction somewhere to anything you do as a, as a large company, right? There's yep. always somebody not happy, but uh, what I was really encouraged by was that, you know, people out there saying, no, this is terrible, this is evil, and then other people that weren't from Microsoft were, were like, you know, arguing with those people saying like, hey, no, this is actually good where Microsoft is, they love open source, and there's other companies that could have bought them that would have been much worse, and right. you know, I can really have the resources to make sure that GitHub thrives and continues to be the the big platform for doing open source. Yeah, We're yeah. actually the, one of the VS Code actually, I think is the biggest open source project on GitHub when we made that acquisition. So it's already a platform that we, you know, are really well invested in just as individual developers. So you kind of bought your source control provider. Yeah. <laughs> just took everyone else with it. How interesting. Okay, cool. Let's focus a little bit on the growth of VS Code, I guess. You know, I was really surprised. Like we talked about the origins a little bit. 2015 mm -hmm. or so it came out, and then the extensions and whatnot. 
did it surprise you? Did you guys do a, like a, a backflip of joy when you saw the Stack Overflow survey showing you know VS Code like the number one editor out there in terms of usage? I was very happy to see that. I mean, it just sort of I still don't really understand what that means. You know what I mean in terms of like wow, it's it's actually the majority of developers use Visual Studio Code. You know, if you yeah. look at that survey, and that's just I can't comprehend that. You know, it just. Uh, I've, I don't know, I feel a lot honored to work on it. Yeah, that's actually, that's pretty awesome, right? You know, one thing I would like to ask you, and I, I have my own opinions and, and I don't think it's uh, crazy or anything, but like, why would Microsoft work on this? Like, you're not selling it, right? It's mm-hmm. just, you just go get it. It's free. What value do you guys have in this other than like goodwill and we just want it to exist or whatever? Yeah, so this question comes up all the time, right? People always ask this and... um I don't know if you know about Microsoft, but we've we've always had a really giant developer tools division, and we've always given developer tools away for free. Like Visual Studio, I think uh, it's a paid product, but actually the majority of people use the free community edition for something like that. But before Visual Studio Code, you know, there's a lot that, you know, if you're an open source developer, you're using Python or Node or something like that. We didn't really have much that was relevant to you from Microsoft because a lot of our stuff was Windows only. And um, right, you had Visual Studio, you had Python tools for Visual Studio, but like you said, that's Windows only, and mm-hmm. that's you know that already creates a lot of friction already. For us, we, you know, the benefit to Microsoft is that you know if you use Visual Studio Code and you like your experience there, maybe you'll consider some of our other stuff. Really, and it really comes down to to that. You know, now, otherwise, you know, you're not really thinking about us. You were not in the conversation. Right? Yeah, that would have been my ex- yeah. guess of what you were trying to get out of it. But you know, I wanted to see it from your perspective, right? Like, if you have interesting Azure plugins, like push a button here and it's on our Kubernetes service, right? Like, yeah, exactly. If it's right there next to them, like then all of a sudden there's your sort of implicit upsell or whatever. Right? Yeah, and, and so we sort of just leave that option on the table, right? You can choose to use that if you want, right? Yeah. It does also allow us to create a really good developer experience for Azure with our Azure plugins. Right, because we can right. sort of, it's sort of like the vertical stack integrated, but also like, you know, choose your own pieces, you know, whatever. Yeah, whatever that's interesting. I, I suppose like in addition to being like, it's near you. So here's the upsell button. Like the people who already choose Azure or other tooling from you guys, like you can provide them the best possible experience cross platform for your own stuff. Yes. Right? Especially if we believe that we have the best developer tools that you can use, right? Yeah, you've definitely made some great ones over over the years. So that, that's pretty cool. And I, I guess, you know, let's touch on some of the features. Like, it, I feel like you all have been on a bit of a tear with, like, doing some cool stuff. So almost all of the announcements and whatnot have been sort of put off or held until here at Build. Like, that's your big developer conference. That's like Apple's WWDC or Google I.O., right? It's our Super Bowl. Yeah, know? exactly. Yeah, it's a big deal. But... The VS Code team announced some pretty cool stuff at PyCon in honor of Python being like the biggest ecosystem there, right? Yeah, just last week at, at PyCon at the Expo Open, we we pushed the buttons and unveiled our uh, Visual Studio Code remote development features. And we brought that to PyCon because it was Python developers who were the most passionate about it. And actually, that's at PyCon last year, that was what everyone was asking us for. So we really said, hey, we got to we got to pull this one early because, you know, we want to go talk to the people who are really asking for it. And um, if you don't know that with Python, a lot of people develop inside of Docker containers or on remote, you know, VMs that have access to giant data sets. And, and then also a lot of people on Windows using Windows subsystem for Linux. And their tools right. and were just not really able to work in those environments. Yeah, right? and Windows subsystem for Linux is, even though it's in the same OS is kind of isolated in certain ways, right? There's no UI, right? So yeah. you can't really <laughs> like type code dot on the command line and have a UI pop up until yeah. now. With and, the, the, until the, now. Yeah, so this is a pretty big deal. And, you know, I, I feel like it addresses one of the things that was, I hear a lot, you know, a lot of people say to me, and it's it's totally fine, but it's it's not the way that I see the world, but it's the way they see the, They say, look, I'm a lot of times am going to be remoted, you know, SSH into a server or I'll be dropped into some environment like Docker or whatever, where I don't have, you know, my fancy tools, you know, be that PyCharm or VS Code or, or whatever, right? So my thinking is I'm going to just work in VI or Emacs because I have it everywhere. Yeah, I think um, SSH development is probably the number one driver of, of VI usage. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's, it's a totally valid uh, perspective. I find it's, it's not the trade-off I make, but it's fine. 
But I feel like this feature kind of says, like, look, you can have proper tooling all the time over SSH and other things. So maybe tell us a little bit. It's like really broken into three parts, right? You talked about WSL, Windows Subsystem for Linux, Docker and containers, and then um, remote SSH type of development. Let me just take a step back and talk about the concept because a lot of people we showed this to, it takes a little bit for it to click because it's a little bit of a different way of, of using VS Code. So the, the user interface of VS Code runs on your local machine, but then the there's a remote server that actually hosts kind of like the back end of VS Code. Right, the, right, like a language server and all that kind of business. Not just the language server, but you know, the Python extension, for example, runs on that remote environment. The C plus plus extension, like you know, the file system source control. VS Code was always a client server model between the UI and, and the backend, and so what we did was just took that server and then moved it off the local machine to the remote. <laughs> you, you environment. You made it farther away. Farther away, exactly. <laughs> so you get an experience that's just like local development. You're typing in, the UI is nice and responsive, but as you're typing in, it's literally like editing directly the files in, in the remote system. So you can do debugging, you can get your IntelliSense and auto-completions, uh, you know. And anything that you have uh, with the Python extension, we didn't even have to really make many changes. It just kind of worked. All the features that we had in there just lit up in this remote uh, remote environment. That's cool because where it's running is actually where it's interacting, right? Like it's on your remote SSH machine, and so you didn't have to teach it how to find that thing. It was just, it's already there, right? Yeah, you just open it, and we automatically copy over like the server and start it. And then you actually don't need any files locally to use it, right? It just sort of it's like the VI experience, but yeah. you know you get all with, of the with rich debugging and code navigation and all that. Yeah, and and people ask like, okay, how do I set up remote debugging? And we say, well, it's not really remote debugging. You know, you're remote editing, but it's local debugging kind of. You know. So it takes a little bit for it to click, but it's, yeah. it's really powerful and it's really, really cool. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to checking it out. There's um, certainly the SSH side of the things. It's, it's where it's interesting for me. You know, the Windows subsystem for Linux, you know, I carry around my fruity laptop, so it doesn't matter that much to me, right? Uh, but if I worked on Windows, that would be cool. Containers, I think containers are pretty interesting as well. So the, the thing I like to say about containers is that if you think about your developer onboarding guide at your company, right? And it's got like this wiki with all these steps. And then usually the, the new developer's first job is to go through the onboarding guide and find all the broken stuff and fix it, right? Right. Install this database server. Oh, you got to set this setting so it works. And yeah. Install yeah. Python in your path. But if you had one, remove that or like, you know, this version of Node or that version of Node. And, and the cool part is that uh, with the container development environment, you can just kind of clone the repo, open it with VS Code, and it, it sort of... Your all your developer dependencies are just defined there for you, and it just starts them up, and you can have that environment that you can just start working with, and everyone gets sort of the same, whether they're on Windows or Mac or, or Linux. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. You definitely get the closer to what you're actually running mm -hmm. debugging and development experience. Well, there's the closer to production, but also just reproducible, so that everyone's got the same thing, right? Yeah, it's on uh, big teams. It's always a pain to like figure out why you know it won't. I did some checking. It doesn't work for that person, but it does for this other person. And yeah, that's no fun. Cool. So this is in the insider build, right? Like I have VS Code, and I heard that announcement, and I checked for updates, and I didn't get any updates. I'm like, oh, oh well. <laughs> What's the story with the insider build, and like, how do I get it? When will a normal installs just start to see it. VS Code Insiders is our daily developer build of VS Code. It updates every day. And then once a month, the Insiders build gets promoted to the thing that gets released, right? The VS Code team uses it themselves for building VS Code. So it is relatively stable. You know what I mean? If it breaks, they fix it quite quickly, sometimes overnight, because we have a team in Zurich working on it. So yeah, it's a side-by-side -side install. You can go to the code.visualstudio.com slash insiders to get the Insiders build. So It'll be available in the stable within, you know, the next couple of weeks. Yeah, it'll probably come out about the time we actually re release this episode. To, yeah, so to the magic of time shifting. Yeah, so the remote extensions are in the marketplace today. They only install on Insiders, but very soon they'll. You can just go to your extensions tab and install the remote development extensions, and yeah. you'll get all the features that we're talking about. Cool. So I want to have this ability on my server. It's Ubuntu running the cloud. I SSH to it, like. What do I do? If you already have a public-private key set up with that SSH server, VS Code just uses your SSH configuration on the machine. So you just you install the remote SSH extension, go to the SSH panel, and you'll see that server listed. And then you just click Open New Window in VS Code, and then it'll just start up a, a new version of VS Code in a, running in that remote context. So it'll install some stuff, and then all of a sudden it'll just connect, and you can... Start okay. using VS Code as if you're on that that machine. And that's pretty cool. So I don't need to at least manually go and change my server. 
to make that happen. Like the first first run, it goes SSH is in there and goes. Well, it looks like you're missing the server sites. So we'll drop that in and mm-hmm. then get it started. Yep, and then it. Uh you can just start coding. Uh, you can open folders on that remote machine, create new files, and just start plugging away. And then you can install, usually the, the one-time step is you, you actually need to install the extensions you want to use on that remote server. So you'd go in and install the Python extension, for example, so that you get Python support. I see. Okay. That's pretty interesting. What's the security story? Like SSH often means production or servers that are like sensitive. <laughs> you don't want people just to do anything there. And I guess, you know, it's already protected with your certificates and SSH, mm-hmm. but... Anything to be aware of? Yeah. So, I mean, the one thing that, that does come up is sometimes people have a 2FA prompt or challenge that they need to enter in order to, to really authenticate with that environment. So, if you're in that situation, there's a setting you can turn on that will bring up the terminal so you can type in an additional password or key if you need to. But, yeah. Then how do I interact with files over there? Like, is there a way to, like, explore the file system and find the files I'm looking for? Do you have projects? Like, what is it? Yeah, so there's two, like, when you open VS Code, you kind of get the, like, open a new file sort of window, you know, the default experience. But then you can open the terminal, and the terminal will be running in there, and you can ls and cd around. But you can also open a folder, and then you'll actually get a little browse window to browse the file system over there. Okay. And then if you pick, like, you know, c or home slash my project, you'll... And you open that, you'll be able to see in the file explorer in the left-hand side. You just have, like, the directory trees. Yeah, you like see the directory tree, yeah. all the files in there and stuff like that. So that's right. kind of a couple ways to explore. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So you uh, mentioned Windows subsystem for Linux, WSL. Maybe people don't know about that, but there's also uh, was a pretty big announcement here, I think, around that as well, right? That that's like proper Linux, not some kind of emulator or something? Yeah, so right? the, the way WSL started, it was a Linux kernel or Ubuntu image that you could run, and it was they sort of shimmed out all the syscall APIs to call into Windows kernel mm-hmm. stuff, right? I mean, that was pretty neat, but, you know, the file system performance was a little bit poor with that. Just, you know, it wasn't, these two things weren't really meant to necessarily talk like that, right? So, right. today at Build, we've announced a, a new version of WSL that's more like a very lightweight VM, where it runs a, a full Linux kernel, and it's, they're, they're saying it's like 20 times faster if, in a lot of cases. Oh, that's pretty cool. You, you don't have that, you know, interopping between the two operating systems. Yeah. What are some of the use cases people have for using that? Like, why would they use it? Interestingly, most Python developers, the majority, well, not the majority, roughly 50% of them are on Windows, but a lot of them also deploy to Linux environments, right? Right. Right. And so, De- dev on Windows push to Linux. Yeah, yeah. Like Linux servers, right? So a lot of their tool chain is in Linux, right? And you want to, you know, LS and grab and said knock and all that stuff. You want to be able to just kind of use that, right? So it's really give me a good bash shell experience where I can apt-get install all the things I need. I can, you know, install Python and, and all that stuff, but still be able to use the UI, the user interface of Windows. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Steve Dower, one of your coworkers, gave a really cool presentation at PyCon that was entitled something like Python on Windows is okay, actually. Yep. <laughs> and it was a really interesting talk. People should definitely go check it out. But some of the the cool things he talked about was, I guess, you know, 60-ish percent of Python developers are using Windows. Like, it's quite a high number of how many people are actually using Windows. But he made the point that if you look around the room, like, there's the conference reality mm-hmm. and there's real reality of, like, uh, sort of tooling and technology distribution and, and conference reality says most people have Macs, a few of them have Linux and there's a couple of people with like a Surface or whatever running Windows, but generally it's, you know, the POSIX side of the world. But if you actually look at the stats it's not, and he talked about why is that, right? Why aren't more of the Windows developers at PyCon and feeling like they're part of the community, not just you know, using the tooling, but actually like part of the Python community. And I don't know, he had some some pretty interesting ideas and solutions he threw out there. But what do you think about that? I definitely agree with the stats. And I was at his, his talk as well. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the there's a lot of maybe hidden people out there who are just, you know, trying to learn Python or trying to get their job done or, you know, and they're all just, you know, struggling to use the tools. And, you know, we're doing as much as we can from Microsoft to make Python easy to use on Windows, but then, you know, it's up to kind of the package authors to think, hey, it's not just, you know, here's my Mac Linux instructions. I need to actually test this on on Windows and make yeah. sure it works on Windows because um, there's a lot of people who maybe can't afford to fly to conferences or who aren't, you know, kind of up in all the high tech kind of stuff that that we all 
live and breathe in every day, right? right. Well, maybe they didn't choose Python. Maybe their job chose Python for them, yeah. right? Like they, they got a job to work as a Java developer, but then somebody said, well, we need you to maintain this Python project because, you know, Sarah, who was working on it, has moved on, and now someone's got to take it over. So you took it over, and they're now in, you know, working with these packages, and they didn't necessarily decide, you know, to like start in that place, right? That's a different perspective, I think. That's possible, and there's also a lot of just think about it, a lot of people use Python for information work, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's sort of, you know, I'm trying to crunch some numbers at my insurance company, right? Like, you know, and I, and I'm using Windows Desktop to do a lot of that stuff. Python might be something that that I'm. Especially these days, a lot a lot of people are using Python just to get their jobs done. Maybe they're not primarily programmers even. Right. right. I think that's a really big source of the growth of Python. It's not like more websites are being built in Python necessarily. It's that Python is, is becoming the tool that people who are not developers mm-hmm. are using. Well, right? I think it's, the, it's growing in both, right? Yeah, um, yeah. It, I agree. It's both becoming a like really advanced capable language for you know things like data science and machine learning as well as still easy to approach for that that person who's just trying to get their job done and trying to compute some numbers and you know maybe script a few things to make their lives easier right absolutely i was talking at a dinner last night with some folks who were not super familiar with python they've been doing more javascript i mean they knew of python but not deeply right they were asking me why do you think python has become the de facto language for data science and, and maybe I'll throw that question out to you. Like, what do you, what do you think? My simple reaction when I heard it was a popular language for data science is like, well, of course. I mean, you got like the maps and the array splices and like all that stuff. And I, I just remember with Python, you can, I could always do something with just a few lines of code, maybe like 80 lines of code that would take me a thousand lines of code in another language. And I'm just like, wow, I can't believe I did all that. You know what I mean? And, and yeah. when you put that together with something like data science plus the really good notation for manipulating arrays and stuff like that. I think it just makes sense. And then you have libraries like uh, Pandas and NumPy that came along and actually made it so you could work with large data sets relatively efficiently and, and, and express a lot of stuff that is, right. like, other languages don't really have. And TensorFlow kind of and what, and well, NumPy even that, you know, has the performance of C basically, mm-hmm. right? Or GPUs, but you don't have to write C directly programming. Data scientists aren't necessarily like super top programmers either. They don't know necessarily all the engineering best practices. So having a language that's kind of really approachable, you know, for them, I think really helps. I was thinking, look, it's a language that's simple to get started. You can kind of get your stuff going, but you don't run out of speed. You've got all these libraries. I think it's, I think it's pretty interesting that it's kind of taking over that space, but to think about why that is, it's, I think there's a few, few things that happen, like the creation of IPython notebooks, for example, and, yep. and some of the tooling, but also just the language. Before I joined the Python team at, at Microsoft, there's an instance where we're trying to crunch some data, and, and this guy who just came out of school like brought in Jupyter notebooks and pandas and all this stuff, and I was like, whoa, Python's changed a lot since I last used it, right? And so exactly. that got me really excited about the language again. Yeah, that's super cool. Yeah, it's, it's got so many mm-hmm. interesting use cases, and it, you know, different people use it so differently, right? Like, mm-hmm. my first reaction to, I need to write some code, is not fire up Jupyter and create a notebook and poke around. It's like, I'm going to create a project with, like, tests and coverage and, like, these files and yeah. architecture and layers, and it's totally valid. It's just different use cases. Yeah, I like that acceptance of kind of, even if you're not doing Python correctly, it's still fine. Yeah. Right? Like, there's really, to me, there's no correct way of using Python. The way to use it is the one that gets your job done as quickly as possible. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, there's a couple of other things I wanted to talk to you about VS Code while you're here that I think is pretty awesome. We talked about machine learning and AI, so I guess I'll start with that one. So, let's talk about IntelliCode. So, we have in autocomplete in general. We have IntelliSense is kind of like Microsoft's terminology for this autocomplete idea, right? Mm -hmm. And then IntelliCode is something different, right? Back at the EuroPython conference last year, we launched uh, the IntelliCode extension in VS Code and it only supported Python. So what what IntelliCode is machine learning AI-assisted autocompletions, right? So we scour a bunch of open source databases. We find what are the common code patterns and then we build this model, and then if you install the IntelliCode extension, you get that model. And then as you're typing, it will predict, based on your current code's context, what the most likely autocompletion is. That's super cool. Like, traditional autocomplete is alphabetical, mm-hmm. probably, or right? Or top five. Or... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, but it doesn't really know, right? It just says, well, these are the, the attributes of this object or this module or whatever, 
here they are, go, we're going to try to help you, right? And maybe substring search, right? Like if you type AE, it'll have like argument exception will show up because it puts those together or something. But it doesn't say, well, it looks like you're in the context of a with statement and you've opened a file and this is the file pointer thing. So if I say dot now, you probably want to read from it or write from it versus, you know, I don't know, whatever else, right? Yeah, exactly. That's pretty awesome. If you actually look at the IntelliCode extension page, there's an animated animated GIF, one of the TensorFlow 1.0 getting started examples. And then it just predicts every single dot, the right thing to press and you press <laughs> enter and it just works. It's, it's that, kind of magical. That's pretty insane. So it's kind of like that, that uh, game you can play, like if you start to text something, on like an iPhone or whatever, where they auto they suggest a few words, and if you just keep you just hitting, keep pressing it, yeah, write the you, sentence out for you. Yeah, it's, right, it's right. like that. Yeah, right. Honey, I'm going to be late from work, but I'm stopping by the store to get milk. It's like, how did that happen? Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but whoops, I wrote a TensorFlow program instead. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so I can just go get that now. That's been out for a while. Yeah, it's been out, and it just uh, so we we first launched a preview of that at EuroPython, and we just GA'd IntelliCode uh, today. And it, initially for VS Code, it was just Python. Uh, and now we've added like TypeScript, JavaScript, and uh, a few other languages there. Yeah. So how does it know? Well, when you said you went through GitHub and, and stuff, like what's the story? It analyzes like the usage of packages or what's it do? I don't know the specifics of the model. That's kind of our data science team figured it out. But it looks at the usages around where your current code is. So if it looks around the surrounding area to see what code is being used around that. And then based on patterns it's seen on GitHub, it... Uh, the model's able to infer what comes next. It's one of those things where it's just sort of like the, all these layers and things like that. You don't know exactly how it works, right? It's AI, right? Yeah. <laughs> tell me what you want, not what you want me to do. Right? Exactly. Don't ask how I did it. I'll just tell you what, what you need. Yeah. So I think it's uh, interesting, you know, like even 20 years ago, people were saying, oh, no, there's not going to be programmers anymore. Mm -hmm. It's just going to be like sort of business people dragging like boxes around and maybe the AI stuff is going to come along. And I feel like that's absolutely not the case these days, right? Like there's plenty more code to be written, but stories like this or tools like this, where it's like assisting. It's an accelerator, right? It's an accelerator, right. I feel like software development has both gotten easier and harder, you know, over the last 10 or 20 years. Like 20 years ago, the tools were way less good. There was no stack overflow. The internet was not much help or, you know, even at some point it didn't exist, right? You had to go for around or whatever. So the types of things we tried to solve with software, right, we didn't have the cloud, for example, they were smaller. It was harder to solve them, but we tried, we like knew they were hard. So we attempted smaller problems. Now we attempt to solve bigger problems, but we have better tools. So I feel like there's this kind of like tension, like it's sort of about as hard as it used to be, but we can do way more. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, like certainly I think you used to be able to print out a book on programming or, or whatever, like, you know, have that reference guide beside your desk and that's just not possible today. Right. Right. And I actually think about when I think about the like technology becoming harder, I think about things like containers, right? Like, hey, it makes it allows me to get all these benefits, but then oh my gosh, it's so much harder to work with, right? And now then, I gotta know about Docker files and also gotta know about Linux and Windows or Linux and Mac maybe and like And things like React, for example, where it's like, Wow, it's a super great programming model, but like you gotta NPM and Babel and transpile and JSX and like what is right. happening? Where's my just, you know, JavaScript source equals or whatever. Yeah, so I mean I think I think the key is if you can sort of get past the tooling complexity and get to that, once you sort of get in that flow of, okay, I've got everything set up and it's working, like we can, we can really do some awesome stuff. But then I think it's really hard for beginners to get into that because there's like this learning curve. I've got to learn the last 20 years of advancement in technology. This portion of Talk Python to Me is sponsored by Backlog from New Lab. Developers know the importance of organization and efficiency when it comes to collaborating on a team. And Backlog is the perfect collaborative task management software for your team. With Backlog, you can create tasks, track bugs, make changes, give feedback, and have team conversations right next to your code. You track progress with features like Gantt and Burndown charts. You document your processes right alongside your wikis. You can integrate with the tools used every day like Slack, Jira, and Google Sheets. You can automatically register issues from email or web form submissions. Take your work on the go using their top-rated mobile apps available on Android and iOS. Try Backlog for your team for free for 30 days using our special URL at talkpython.fm slash backlog. That's talkpython.fm slash backlog. The last the other one that I said I was going to ask you about too, the other one that I thought is pretty cool that I've wanted for a long time in editing is something called uh, live share, I think. Yep. I've done a lot of like, hey, let's work on this together. So I'm going to set up a Zoom meeting and I'll share my screen or you know, Skype and we'll share the screen or who knows how this is going to happen. But it probably involves 
sharing a screen and who's typing right now? Oh, I need to type that. Let me switch back to your computer and you'd share your screen and yeah. Or go up two lines there. No, one character over, one character over. No, yeah. that, that one, this one. And that's the point where you're like, why are they not showing line numbers in their editor? Come on. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I could just say line 132 and we'd be done. But no, up, up, up. Yeah, exactly. So this live share stuff is uh, is pretty cool and it's kind of like that, right? Yes. The way it works is um, somebody can start a live share session. So first of all, you install the VS live share extension. It works on both Visual Studio and Visual Studio Code. You start a collaboration session, you invite someone to join, and then when they join, they're sort of connected into your development environment. They can see all the, the files you have open. They can, you know, if they start typing, they'll get IntelliSense. They can collaboratively debug with you. You can choose to follow each other or go explore the code base kind of on your own and come back. You can sort of like click a follow button and things like that. Is that a VS Code only thing or does that work with other stuff? It works with Visual Studio as well the full Visual Studio. So if, I get this question all the time, you know, can I collaborate, can I have a Windows machine and have a Mac join that? Yes, you can collaborate across platforms and, and machines and stuff like that. So, I mean, the cool thing, it really helps you if you can have someone come in and look at the code and then they can just type in the code that they want to write, you know what I mean? And uh, you can have multiple people joining in on that. So it, it's really cool. I, I just used it the other day with a coworker when we were building our demos for PyCon and Build and it was just like, wow, this... Yeah, that sounds pretty killer. Can you do it? Is it like, pretty useful for code review something like that um yeah yeah, yeah if you want to kind of explore around okay yeah that sounds like a pretty cool feature definitely so we're getting pretty short on time so i guess let me just ask you a few sort of closing out questions one of the things that that was cool at PyCon, and i think would be cool to see if it show up over here at this conference is the sprints mm-hmm. right the at the end the last couple of days of PyCon. There's a few other days where folks who are maybe working on Flask or SQL Alchemy, they stick around and collaboratively, you know, jam on it, jam on it, right? Jam on it. Maybe learn even how to become a contributor to that project or whatever. It'd be cool if you guys did something like that here. This is the first time someone's brought it up. I actually think you're right. It's a cool idea. I'll, uh, I'll recommend it. Yeah, yeah. But one thing I, you know, to give you guys props, one thing that was really cool here is out on the expo floor, there's like a, maybe, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 computers. And it said, this section is reserved for students. And any student that walked by could sit down and start working on some like projects using the computers there for, I think there was some IoT or robotic stuff going on. But I feel like that's super cool and other conferences should adopt that. Like at PyCon, there's some stuff like that, but it's usually like in a back room closed off and you had to know about it in advance and sign up for it. It's not like it was happening in public and all the other students would happen upon it, right? Yeah, I mean, they started doing the mentored sprints this year at PyCon to start bringing more people in. The students thing was new this year and, you know, I just love it. I think it's a great idea and, you know, anything we could do to get people learning programming at a younger age, it helps help us all move forward quicker, but also I think it does a lot to increase the diversity. Yeah, yeah. People can kind of stumble upon it when they're young and go, oh, this is cool. I like this, you know? Yeah, it's, it's super cool and, Programming is usually pretty easy with like a few little sharp edges. And you're like, why does this not work? Why can't I get over this? And if someone's there, just go like the mentored sprints. Just click this button. Or- yeah, like, oh, you got to run this command first. Oh, you didn't activate your virtual environment or whatever, right? Like then it'll be smooth, right? Just a little bit of, you know, initial help, I think it'd be great. Yeah, yeah, yeah pretty cool. So um, what's your favorite thing here at Build? Your favorite uh, announcement or thing that, that came out around conference? I think the WSL2 was definitely a highlight, good file system performance, things like that. The new Windows terminal, right? Yeah, we haven't talked about that and I haven't had a chance to look at it, but it, you know, tell us about it. It sounds like command prompt got better. And it's actually, they put the code up on GitHub. It's, it's open source, but it's like tabbed. It's looks a lot nicer. It's got full Unicode support and you can kind of switch between a WSL or a Windows command prompt. or Right. So this is not PowerShell, not the separate PowerShell like blue window, but like the, the traditional CMD one is now better. Is that what it is? Yes. It might support PowerShell too. I haven't caught up on all the yeah, yeah, sure. just yet, to sure, be honest. Sure. But the one thing, we also announced a cloud-hosted developer environments where okay. it's a preview right now. You have to sign up for it, but I'm really excited to see where that goes. What does that mean? You get like a remote terminal or is it this VS Code? Well, think about it, the VS Code remote, but then somebody also spins up a server for you as well that you can just like right. click a button and get your environment pre-created, pre-provisioned for you in the cloud and just start working away on it. So yeah. I'm really excited to see where that goes. So if, if that sounds interesting to anyone, definitely sign up for the preview and check it out. That's cool. Does it work in a web browser or does it require something like VS Code? Both. Yeah. Okay, so cool. VS Code, they've, I mean, there's so many things that we've announced here. The yeah. browser-based offering as well. Okay, yeah, that's pretty cool. So the reason I ask is a lot of times people are trying to teach 
classes or run stuff, especially around schools and students, and they just have a Chromebook. Mm-hmm. And it's like, can you do Python on a Chromebook? How do you do that, right? So yeah. these sorts of remote environments that like work in the browser are really awesome because then it makes it possible for all these kids to do programming. Yeah, I love that from the getting started angle as well as say I've got a super big, powerful development environment and I've got to spin up a bunch of them all the time and I just want to move from this one to that one to this one to that one. So at really large scale at some of the larger companies, that that's another area where that's really interesting. Okay, yeah, super cool, super cool. All right, well, that, I think that might use up all our time, but not all the questions I had for you. So I'll ask you the final two questions before we wrap it up. Kind of know the answer to the first one, I'm guessing, you know, but uh, I'll ask it just for, uh, I guess I always do. If you're going to write some Python code, what editor do you use? Obviously, Visual Studio Code. Yeah, right on. Okay. And uh, Notable PyPI package. So I just started playing with this today. I have a build talk later today, but I just started using TextBlob for doing sentiment analysis. Oh, yeah. TextBlob is cool. Yeah. I just came across it as well. Yeah. And because I was like, how do, what's the easiest way to do sentiment analysis? And I came across TextBlob. And I'm like, wow, this code fits in one tweet. I can build a Flask API that returns you know, positive or negative within, you know, a few lines of code. This is pretty awesome. Yeah, that's cool. Like, so people who don't know, text blob is uh, like a, a simplified layer on top of NLTK. Mm-hmm. And you can do all sorts of cool stuff. Like here's document and ask it for the sentences, ask it for the nouns, ask it for the sentiment of phrases, the number, like the unique words, a lot of cool like things that are real simple though, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I just started playing with it and I'm, it's pretty fun. Right on. All right. Well, Final call to action. People maybe want to check out some of the things you talked about, like the insider remote Visual Studio Code stuff, something like that. How do they get started? So check out our Python blog, aka.ms slash Python blog. So we post you know, all of our updates there, our monthly releases the, about the VS Code remote stuff. So if you just want to keep up to date with what we're doing, check that out. All right. Right on. Well, Dan, thanks for being on the show. It's great it's to chat with you. My pleasure. Great yeah. chat. You've in person even. Yeah. This is awesome. Thanks. <laughs> yep. See you. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Our guest on this episode was Dan Taylor, and it's been brought to you by Linode and Backlog. Linode is your go-to hosting for whatever you're building with Python. Get four months free at talkpython.fm slash Linode. That's L-I-N-O-D-E. With Backlog, you can create tasks, track bugs, make changes, give feedback, and have team conversations right next to your code. Try Backlog for your team for free for 30 days using the special URL talkpython.fm slash backlog. Want to level up your Python? If you're just getting started, try my Python Jumpstart by Building 10 Apps course. Or if you're looking for something more advanced, check out our new async course that digs into all the different types of async programming you can do in Python. And of course, if you're interested in more than one of these, be sure to check out our Everything Bundle. It's like a subscription that never expires. Be sure to subscribe to the show. Open your favorite podcatcher and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code. (laughs) 